We are, are looking into the details on this uh, most recent one uh, that doesn't seem to fit uh, the pattern set by the, uh, the previous two, but we'll have more to say uh, as we uh, collect the facts on this issue. That was Justin Trudeau as Canada confirms three people detained in China, two for endangering national security and a third apparently unrelated arrest, but all three after the detention of Meng Wanzhou a Huawei executive. I'm James Chow and welcome to At Large, a weekly global affairs podcast. In Hong Kong, it's Friday, December 21st, a few days before Christmas, but with no signs that the world is slowing down to the end of yet another year. Back to Trudeau, what I take from his words are this. One, he's being extremely careful about putting all three Canadian arrests in China into the same basket and thus not trying to politicize further the Huawei case. And the second point is this, I think, unrelated or not, these three cases collectively ramp up the pressure on Trudeau and his government to identify an exit strategy from the Huawei incident. As you know, Meng Wanzhou, the CFO and daughter of the founder of Huawei Technologies, was arrested at the beginning of December as she was switching between international flights in Vancouver. The warrant originated from the United States. It says Meng and her company violated sanctions by doing business with Iran through one of its subsidiaries. Now, we don't know yet how true this is, but what we do know is that Meng's detention comes at one of the most sensitive chapters in the China-US relationship at a time when they're in the depths of an unprecedented trade war and right after the two Two presidents had just negotiated a 90-day truce. So the stakes are very high. The arrests of an ex-Canadian diplomat, Michael Kovrig, and businessman, Michael Spaver, are widely believed to be in retaliation, a tit-for-tat for Meng's detention, and critically for Canada choosing to involve itself in the US warrant and for painting this thereafter as a non-political case that is purely a case for the law courts. The United States has 60 days to present a full extradition case, and in the meantime, Canada can only wait. Meanwhile, Meng is out on bail, and while this doesn't make it right, arguably, you can say she is as much of a pawn in this complex web of dynamics as the other two Canadians. I played this last week from Bruce Fine, a lawyer who specialises in international law, when he was asked just how serious Meng's case is. Number one, what's the violation? Breaking sanctions with Iran? It's of trivial uh, concern to the United States national security. It's not like they, that she's alleged to have stolen any intellectual property relating to nuclear technology or weapon systems or anything like that. This is more than just a waiting game. In the meantime, it's not just about China and the United States, but also China and Canada. Their relationship is really under a lot of heat. Canada has been working towards a free trade agreement with China, as it also has been with the United States. Neither have panned out so far. As recently as August, China's ambassador to Canada publicly hoped that the FTA would progress. Remember, China has its own woes with the United States. So figuring out a trade deal with Canada is as much of an incentive for itself. But The Chinese leadership isn't going to back down on exerting pressure on Canada, at least not until Meng is released. James Brander is a professor of Asia-Pacific trade, and he's based at the University of British Columbia's Souder School of Business. He gave an interview this week in which he spelled out the likely consequences for Canada. 
Canada-Chinese relations have obviously uh, taken a couple of steps back. It's a big problem for Canada. It's uh, basically a lose-lose situation for Canada. Uh, nothing good is coming out of this, and I don't think that anything good can come out of it. The economist Jeffrey Sachs has made a number of important points in a new opinion piece. He describes the arrest of Meng as a dangerous move by the Trump administration. He said it now compromises the safety of U.S. business community leaders who are traveling abroad because it set a precedent by singling out Meng and Huawei. Like Bruce Fine, Sachs questions the Iran sanctions violation charge, saying that many companies, American and non-American, have done exactly the same, citing the example of J.P. Morgan Chase, which has fined almost $90 million for breaking Making sanctions not only on Iran, but Cuba and Sudan as well. But he says Jamie Dimon wasn't arrested. Sachs links the targeting of Meng and Huawei to a U.S. attempt to stop China's expanding influence in global technology. Huawei is a major player in this tech race, something that I also talked about in last week's show. And to underline his point, Sachs says the U.S. is closing Western markets to Chinese high-tech exports and blocking Chinese purchases of U.S. and European tech companies. What I think is that this is more than just about tech. This is more than just about trade. This is about which country is going to dominate humanity, how we interact with one another, and who can get there first. And if you can't be the first to the post, can you slow the other one down? I think the Canadians know what's at stake as well. That's what it sounded like when Foreign Minister Chrystia Freeland has been speaking cautiously with the media, not wanting to inflame an already fragile situation. Canada should have been the country to pounce on the opportunity on capitalising on the US-China trade war. What it could have done was reaffirm its closeness with its neighbour, the United States, while quietly exploring a new relationship with the second biggest economy in the world, China. So with one and two in its pocket, it would have been in a prime and renewed position. I think about all the people who have been arrested, out on bail or still in detention. There are some dark forces at play, there's no doubt about that. And it's not limited to one country or the other. I think everyone is actively involved. Now, Justin Trudeau said that this isn't a case about politics, but I wonder whether it is. An article on the Sunday Morning Herald in Australia says differently. It claims, controversially, that five countries that share intelligence in a grouping known as the Five Eyes has been busy waging a campaign to take down Huawei since the summer. That's Australia, the United States, the United Kingdom, New Zealand, and yes, Canada. You can find the article by googling Huawei and Five Eyes Nations, but essentially the piece written by journalists Chris Allman and Angus Grigg argues that the purpose was to stop Huawei from supplying equipment for their next generation wireless networks. Food for thought. Well, Steve Pruitt is a managing partner at Watts Partners and a former US government figure. He says he spots a familiar political pattern. It, it, it kind of fits into the what I would call the typical uh, Trump script of how to negotiate with someone across the table, create as much chaos as you can, and out of that chaos you uh, arise as supposedly the victor. So I think it fits into that, uh, and I think we're more than likely going to see more. The other story I'm covering today is about Chinese ride-sharing app Didi. It's not a jump from one story to the other, as I think tech is at the core of the tensions between China and the US. And now it seems the Chinese are trying to make serious inroads in Mexico. 
like Canada, Mexico is another neighbor to the United States. So right in its backyard, so to speak. Why Mexico? Pablo Mondragon is one of the executives at DD Mexico, and he explained what the strategy of bringing the brand there is. Uh, Mexico and Latam as a region uh, is one of the fastest growing uh, in terms of internet and smartphone penetration. So for Mexico City, Alistair, uh, is one of the biggest cities in Mexico and in the world. And in terms of mobility, there are many challenges. So that's why uh, services like Didi uh, are very, very easy for passengers and citizens to adopt. Well, Mexico is no stranger to ride-sharing apps, least of all to Uber, which is dominating the market over there. And if you've been to Mexico, I went once to Mexico City. What a stunning city that is. Um, You'll know that it's hard to navigate the country with its uh, traffic and because it's so large. So Pablo Mandragón recognizes that Mexico is a specific market with local conditions. And within this vast country, there are many nuances and different needs as well. And if you look at Chinese bike sharing app, Mobike, which did so well in China, has been trying to expand internationally. It's taking time to roll out. It takes time to replicate success. So can Didi do in Mexico and elsewhere what it's done in China? Every city it has their own particularities. It's how we want to tackle all of these challenges. So it's based on the priority that we have in terms of safety and customer service, is how can we work closely with drivers and passengers, and how can we develop technology and processes that are tailored for Mexico country and for the specific cities. Arun Sundrajan has also been speaking this week on television. He's a professor at NYU Stern School of Business, and he's also the author of The Sharing Economy. He's been talking about DD and whether it's really going to succeed or not. Many people don't realize this, but if you measure ride-hailing companies by the number of rides they give per day, DD is already double the size of Uber and the world's largest ride-hailing platform. I think they are strong in China despite the recent troubles. Um, They are profitable in China, and so they're strong in their own backyard, which makes them well-positioned to sort of expand globally. So I can certainly see Latin America as being the next big battleground between Uber and Didi. Well, I use Didi whenever I'm in China. I don't use it anywhere else. And I use Uber almost everywhere else in the world. I don't have a preference as such, but I will say this. While I don't agree with many of the practices that Uber has in place in terms of its huge controversies, but Uber really, by and large, is a universal app. DD has had problems of its own in the past. There's been murders of uh, a DD driver and also DD passengers. Um, But the way it seems to have handled these cases publicly and internally seems to be very different to the way Uber has. And that's been the stumbling block for Uber to demonstrate to its customers that it can not only provide cars and quality service, but that it cares about its drivers and its riders too. Um, I think a lot of sharing economy platforms are realizing that uh, digital trust isn't the end of the story that you need a sort of robust human physical world sort of a complement to the digital cues that people are using. And so the fact that DD is ramping up, it's sort of like, you know, um, the size of its trust and safety team by a few thousand people to sort of screen drivers better and to try and prevent these events from happening. 
I'm James Chow. That's it for this episode of At Large. We'll be back with you again after the holidays. Have a great Christmas and a great new year wherever you are.